Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux Virtual Machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Greater Than Code. You can find all of the details at linode.com slash greater than code. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com slash greater than code and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 217. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Jamie Hampton. Thanks, John. Uh, And I'm excited to introduce our newest panelist, Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey. Good to see you all. Next up on our introduction list is Lara Major. Lara is the CTO of Motional, where she leads the engineering team developing autonomous vehicles. She was previously the CTO at Aria Insights, a tethered drone startup and a division leader at Draper Laboratory, where she led the development of machine intelligence solutions. She has an MS from MIT and a BS from Georgia Tech, and she was recognized by the Society of Women Engineers as an emerging leader. Recently, Lara published a book called What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots. So cool to have you on the show today, Lara. Thank you, Casey. It's great to be here. And we like to start every show with the same question. This one is no surprise, probably. What is your superpower, and how did you acquire it? Yeah, that's a great question, and a hard one to answer. But if I had to pick one superpower, I would say I think it's problem-solving. You know, I've developed a way to um, take the chaos of any situation and figure out a path to get through it. So whether that's a team that's having a challenge and we have to kind of redesign the team, or it's a program where we're going to miss a milestone or we're struggling to develop the capability we need, or whether it's technical, where we're trying to come up with a solution to a new, you know, a new technical challenge. Uh, yeah, I've, I have a way of sort of seeing through the noise and, and finding a path to get to a solution. And how did I acquire it? That's another great question. Um, I think, you know, it somewhat comes naturally to me. I tend to you know, have strong sort of analytic skills and solving problems has always, I guess, been something I've enjoyed. But I think, you know, throughout my career, it's been, you know, really honed by um, experiencing so many complex situations. And, uh, you know, I think in the end, you know, building any product, especially a complex product like an autonomous vehicle, is never easy. There are lots of problems that come up along the way. It's never a direct path from any plan you make the day you implement it, uh, you have to change it. So I think it's by living through so many of those experiences, facing so many challenges and, and having to find a way to fight through those challenges and work to get to a solution. It's really, I think, what's allowed me to kind of hone those skills. And by seeing things through, especially I built a lot of first-of-a-kind systems. And so being on one side where you think something is impossible and then finding a way to get through it and realizing that you can solve the problem, I think there's been a lot of learning through experiencing that many times. 
That sounds like a hugely useful skill. I love working with problem solvers. I'm sure we'll hear a ton of examples as we talk to you today. Great. I would love to compliment you on the title, What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots. I think that's just delightful. And I'm really excited to like get some of your insight about robots. And I think that's what we're going to kind of talk about today. You gave us a Thank list you. of like really insightful questions and topics about that are all kind of like themed about robots. I'm really excited to like get into them. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we, you know, the title definitely is catchy. I think it sticks with you. And, you know, we came up with it after writing the book. It was you know, when we were into the book that we, we sort of realized that that title really captured what we were trying to share, which was um, really around what's next and, and where's this all going? What's, what's this leading to? And sort of more of the reality of what can be expected and what cannot be expected. So I think in the end, the title does capture sort of the theme of the book. I hope you'll forgive me for asking like a big question, but where is it going? in your opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. And something, you know, Julie and I worked really hard on, we, we thought very deeply about about that question. Yeah, so I mean, I think the big takeaway from what we cover in the book is that it's probably not going exactly where people think it's going. You know, I think we sort of all had the, you know, the Jetsons vision of robots, and we expected them to be here, and we expect them to kind of be looking and acting like people. And the reality is um, that it's different than that, that there are a lot of problems that robots can solve, and that a lot of ways that robots can help us, but that they need to be designed with that purpose in mind. So they need to be designed to help us in those ways where people maybe are not as good at a task driving, let's say, you know, um, especially when you're tired or have had, you know, some drinks. So when there's a task that a person's not good at, you know, that's again, where you can kind of lean on robotic capability to help complement the person. But it's less about the robot behaving like a person. And it's more about the robot doing a very good job at performing that task in a repeatable way. So that's where robots have really excelled. If you look at, you know, we cover a lot of different applications. If you look at industrial applications, let's say in a factory, if there's a a very, you know, straightforward task that's repeatable, a robot's really good at that. If there's a a task that requires a little more, you know, judgment or creativity, you know, that's where people excel. And and robots aren't going to get there, you know, anytime soon. So I think, you know, that's one of the themes of the book is that the expectations maybe are a little off um, from what we've thought in the past, but that there's a lot of potential robots, you know, in their form today capability they provide today, ways that they can help everyday people. And that's what we really wanted to focus on in the book is how can we, you know, accelerate designing robots in this way so that they can, again, help society in a safe way. I'm hearing a theme here that the robots we imagined we'd have would be more human-like. But I think the robots we have today actually are personified, at least. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is true. We inevitably will personify, you know, it's it's funny, we even personify other electronics, I think, that we interact with a lot. But certainly robots, you know, if you have a Roomba at home, it's probably not that uncommon that you've given it a name and maybe view it as, as pet-like. It wasn't designed to look like a person. You know, I think that's one of the key things is it was designed, you know, if you, if you look at the even just the physical design of it, it's designed to do it's tasked very well to be able to glide through the room efficiently and, you know, sl- slide past objects very well to clean the floor underneath a chair or a table. It's not lo- designed to look like a maid or, you know, what some of the, the past um, visions of what a vacuum robot might look like. It looks very different than that. 
I think it's a very human being thing to do to like project emotions onto other things. I also think that people have like a really, I don't want to say a low bar because like I agree with this, but like we think a lot of things are cute. Like Roombas are cute. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, that is true. And I think that's exactly the point, you know, that we can design the robots to do their tasks really well. And again, match the form and the function of the robot to the task that they're going to do. And it can still be delightful to people, right? It doesn't have to look like a person to delight the users who are going to in- encounter the robot. And so certainly those are important things. Um, you're going to trust a system more if you enjoy using it. And there are other factors as well. Like, you know, we need the people who come across these robots, whether, you know, it's it's a robot they own or a robot that they pass on the sidewalk to understand what the robot's doing and to be able to predict if the robot's going to get in their way or if the robot's going to complete its task effectively. So there are certainly are reasons that we need the robot to behave in ways that people understand. But again, I think it's it's really kind of changing that the fundamental premise, design premise that, you know, again, focusing more on kind of what's the core task that the robots are doing and how to design them from the beginning to do that task very well. Do you think there are also downsides of the way that people like put emotions onto machines in this way? Yes, that's played out over time. If you look in aviation and other industrial domains, so people begin to over rely on the automation or the robot in times when maybe they shouldn't. So we talk about some different accidents that have occurred in in the book in aviation where this became a problem, where the human, in that case the pilot, sort of lost cognitive control of the situation because they were, you know, really relying on the autonomous system and not, you know, more deeply engaging with the task themselves. So that's exactly right, that the, the interaction that people have with these systems has to be carefully designed in a way that allows the person to maintain the right level of, you know, understanding and awareness of what the robot's doing, what the task is, and, and how and if, you know, they may need to intervene or if they may need to change their behavior or actions to accommodate the robot's task. Yeah, I've heard stories about how you can tend to think that, well, like this robotic system, it was obviously designed by experts and it probably knows better than me in situation X. And so you sort of leave it to run things rather than thinking critically about what it's doing and what it's not doing. And and I remember reading something a while back about how in situations like these, the, the robotic system can communicate its level of certainty about what it's doing. Like, I'm doing this, but I'm only 60% certain that this is the right decision. And that way the human can come in and say, oh, oh, you're not 100% certain about this. Let me think about it more deeply and, like, decide if I need to override. Like, there are ways of communicating that, not I'm perfect AI, I'm doing everything correctly. That's exactly right. I think it ties back to the, this question of what to expect out of these robots. And, and it's that they're, they aren't going to be perfect. There is no, you know, a human built system that has ever been perfect. You know, it's important that when we design these systems and when we use these systems, that we understand that there are going to be errors or failures in designing the system. We cover the, the Swiss cheese model and how we can as you know, designers and engineers, how we can make sure that there are levels of protection to make sure that we catch and gracefully fail safe when there is a problem. So your example, John, is, you know, is a great one. If a robot's only 60% sure of an answer, you know, then the robot itself needs to factor that into its decision making. And if there's a way to communicate that 
out to a person to say, hey, can you help me here? You know, let's say a sidewalk delivery robot, you know, comes across an obstacle that they can't quite make sense of. Uh, let's say it's a, a fallen branch and, and the robot is capable of rolling over a fallen branch, but it's not sure. Is it a fallen branch or is it a child, you know, that is playing a game by laying down in front of the robot? You know, it could stop and ask for help, whether that's somebody locally to say, hey, is anyone there? Anyone laying in front of me? Or whether there's a remote operator who can, you know, log in remotely and, and identify that, nope, that's a branch. That's not a child. Go ahead and roll right over it. This is the, the whole idea of the human-robot partnership is, is that robots won't be perfect and, and they never will be, but they can ask for help. They need to fail safely and get help from people. I think that sort of feeds into, I think, some of the topics that you had lined up for this, which is like how people treat robots. Like how likely are people to help a robot that is standing there on the street saying, hey, I can't quite figure this out. Can you help me? And just general approach to like having a like a robot doing that, you know, as far as like what people are going to do in response. That's right. Yeah, there's you can't expect much out of people or who are going to encounter these robots. So it's, you know, it, it can't become a nuisance. We saw that in San Francisco when some of the sidewalk delivery robots really started getting deployed at scale. And um, even in a city that's as forward leaning and, you know, early adopters of technology as, you know, in, in San Francisco, they really quickly responded negatively that these, you know, delivery robots became a nuisance and were getting in their way and, you know, posing a, a risk to especially some of the vulnerable members of society. And so they put restrictions around that. So it can't be too invasive. It can't become a nuisance. It has to be carefully designed. How's this partnership going to work in a way that's very fluid and very natural and, you know, communicate in a way that is intuitive for the people who need to, to step in and help. You know, I think in the, in the book we talk about uh, when we look at robots of the past or robots of, of the present, um, when we look at industrial applications, those robots are controlled by experts. So people who not only know how to do the task without the robot, but also who, you know, have a tremendous amount of training on the robot itself. So they understand exactly how the robot works, and they are therefore like very knowledgeable and very much able to speak the same language as the robot. As we see robots cross over into the consumer space, you know, that's no longer the case. None of us want to have to, you know, go to a, a class or read a user's manual on how the robot works. We want it um, just as our smartphones have evolved to just work. You know, we don't have to train on them. We don't have to, I guess you can go to the genius bar if, if you want to get extra help. But mostly we want to be able to pick it up and use it and have it be very you know, natural. And we need robots to be moving in that same direction. Speaking of how people treat robots, like there, there are so many like varying examples of human behavior towards robots that perhaps weren't expected. In some cases, they've been helpful and they've been treated well by the the communities where they're living. And other times, like I remember, there was like a hitchhiking robot a couple of years ago that was trying to get across the country, um, and then it was found like beaten up on the side of the road, like later on, and like. So I realized there's definitely some trickiness around like the level of empathy people have for robots and like the level of cruelty that they can deploy against them when they don't have that empathy. And I'm curious about what your thoughts are there. Yes. I mean, I think um, the more that the robots are designed to help and, and the more that they are fulfilling, you know, a, a need, the more likely people will be to be empathetic and to treat the robot with the uh, kindness or at least to not, you know, actively try to damage it. 
So I think that's an important part of the solution is, again, back to designing robots to perform tasks where they're needed, where there's a job to be done that a person isn't as good at. And, you know, some of it's an evolution. You know, we see robots showing up in unexpected places right now, and maybe they're not quite as good at the job that they're starting out with, but there's a learning process there. So a security robot, for example, you know, we see them falling over in fountains or having other mishaps. The robots that have shown up in grocery stores, we all kind of are perplexed wondering, what is this robot really doing? It's causing a great nuisance during COVID as we try to socially distance already. And then you've got this robot navigating through the aisles. So yeah, I think part of it is, you know, having a robot that's clearly, you know, filling a need. And then I think the other part of it also is education. You know, as people get more experience with robots, uh, more knowledge of, of how they work and how, especially these new consumer robots, I think that, you know, the empathy that will grow, their understanding and trust will grow in, in these new, their new social entities is really what we call them in the book. It's it's something that society you know, it will take time for, for us to kind of adapt and figure out how to integrate these new social entities. That's really interesting to me to think about, like, how society as a whole is going to decide what's socially acceptable about this, like, brand new thing. Like, do you tell Alexa thank you after she gives you information or, like, not? <laughs> And that's, that's the right. kind of thing people are having arguments about right now. But I yeah. feel like in the future, there will just be like a standard about like what's socially acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have an Alexa and my, I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old daughter. And, uh, you know, they watch us, my husband and I, you know, give commands without any kind of typical politeness you would show a human being all the time. So we're yelling out commands to Alexa, play this song, turn up the volume, stop playing. And then we see them model that behavior when they talk to Alexa and we wonder how's that going to affect their social skills down the road. So um, certainly it's a big open question for us to figure out as a society. And I think, you know, one of the key things we talk about in the book are that a big part of the empathy and helping society to accept these robots is going to be developing these robots in a way that allows them to follow social norms. So the Alexa example is is one, but I think as they enter our physical space, this becomes even more important. You know, so if you try to make your way through a crowded aisle at a grocery store, you'll you would say excuse me, or your behavior would change depending on who you were navigating around. If it were an elderly person with a cane, you would give them more space. If it were a parent holding a screaming toddler, you know, you might turn and go down a different aisle to not create more chaos for that parent. So we're going to need robots to do similar things, to follow social norms, and to have some understanding of the people that they're operating around and adapt their behavior based on who they're interacting with. Yeah, I think one interesting thing that I don't think it's an issue right now, but inevitably will be like there, there will be a certain class of autonomous robots that are doing their own thing. But there are also likely to be some percentage of remotely controlled robots where there's a human on the other end. And mm -hmm. as people, like, we probably want to make a distinction between how we treat one and how we treat the other. But it's tricky because you don't always know. Like, if you're just saying, oh, you stupid robot, get the hell out of my way. Like, maybe there's a person on the other line being the robot out in the world and, like, you're being rude to them. Like, I remember a story about how they had gotten people with cerebral palsy or some other thing where they weren't really mobile, but they were able to remotely operate robots and be servers in a restaurant. So the robots would do it, but these people would be the ones doing the interaction. 
And like, mm-hmm. it brings up so many weird issues about like what the standards are for treating these robots when you don't necessarily know if there's a human behind them or not. Yeah, that's an interesting dimension. And I think certainly, you know, remotely controlling robots or, or having some remote human, you know, ability for a person remotely to assist the robot is going to be a part of our the rollout of these robots uh, for the foreseeable future. And so there, like you said, there will always be a human in some way involved in that robot's activity. So it's not just a machine. That's why we call it a social entity, right? It is a part of a bigger system and it will interact with people. It has been designed by people. It's likely in some way being commanded, whether at a high level or a detailed level, by people. And so, yeah, it's not just a, a box, um, a rolling box. It, it does have a role. And yeah, and certainly we will have to figure out what's the proper way for people to interact with these robots, especially when they are in our way or, or make mistakes, because they will. So uh, like you said, if, there's a, if they know there's a person behind it, they might be more patient for some of those mistakes. I like that term social entity a lot. I think that's really interesting. So some robots might be social entities already and we don't realize it, and some might not be at all. Like, I don't think of my dishwasher as being very personable. That's right. We are surrounded by autonomous systems, you know, more than we realize, which is in some ways you can call a robot. But I think as they get up and move, you know, and they kind of have to coexist in our physical space, that's where uh, these problems really kind of come to a head and where the social norms and the, you know, those both in terms of, you know, the need to engage in a more understandable way by other people, but also the safety of those systems is become, you know, comes to the forefront. Because if they are able to move, usually these systems are pretty powerful and heavy. And so we have to be able to manage that movement and make sure that it's uh, done in a safe way. Yeah, it strikes me that Silicon Valley startups are not the sort of entities that you would want to create like thousand pound creatures wandering the sidewalks, you know, because they're, you know, focused on quarterly deliverables rather than like product safety. And that it there's definitely going to need to be some sort of government regulation in order to sort of force that safety into the industry, because I don't think it's going to come there naturally. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one thing that, that we say at Motional is, is that uh, safety has to transcend competition. So when you're dealing with a, you know, a strong, powerful machine like a, a robot or an autonomous vehicle, safety has to come first. And, um, and you're right that business, you know, by nature isn't designed to, you know, it's designed to go fast and, and try to capture returns um, as quickly as possible. And that might not always be the right path when you're dealing with a safety critical system. And so there, there have to be checks and balances put into place. There have to be standards. There has to be regulation. And I think we're only, you know, we're just starting to see the beginnings of that and how we regulate the deployment of these systems. Yeah, hearkening back to something you said earlier, talking about how it helps to know what the robot is doing, like how it's helping, you know, when, when you encounter it uh, to sort of contextualize what's going on and, and, and why it's useful and things like that. And it strikes me that the communication of that purpose like through not necessarily like written or verbal like words is going to be important part of the design of the robot. So it's sort of obvious why it's there and what it's doing and how helpful it is. That's right. Yeah, it's been shown in, in other domains that, you know, when a robotic system is, there's three things that it needs to be able to communicate or that need to be apparent to a person 
for a person to be able to effectively interact with that system. And those three things are it needs to be observable. So you need to be able to observe its its goals and its action and its intent. The second is uh, predictable. You need to be able to predict what it's going to do next. And the third is directable. If you need to give the robot some type of command, you need to be able to do that in a way that you understand. You know, I think those are the those are three things that are really not easy, but easier to design in when you have an expert user and you have a very you know complex control panel that they're using. But when we think about a consumer robot that's you know designed with industrial design in mind and trying to delight users while also functioning well, these three things become a lot more challenging to support. And how do you do that? There, you know, how do you support those? You know, developing that right mental model. And so I think that's some of the hard work that the tech industry has to figure out. And we've, we've seen it in other industries. You know, I, I think back to when, you know, tablets and smartphones before they existed and the whole, you know, generation of this direct manipulation models that were developed. Now we all pinch and zoom and swipe, you know, with ease. We know how to interact, you know, with these direct manipulation devices. So we need a similar type of, you know, new language in how we communicate and understand robots. I hope this question isn't too silly, but I wonder what your take is on like how media affects the way that people perceive robots. Because I think like one thing we haven't brought up is the stereotype of like, oh, our robotic overlords after they like take over. And like the only reason people feel that way is because they've seen it in science fiction. And so I wonder like what your opinion is on like that relationship and like how we could maybe use it to guide the way that people interact with robots in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think maybe a part of the motivation for the title as well, that, you know, I think you're right, science fiction creates one set of expectations that we think are somewhat, you know, pretty far from where we are today. And so we wanted to kind of ground and provide a little more insight into where robotics, you know, are today, what they can help us with, and how how we need to integrate them in. I think yeah, certainly media and, um, you know, it's great for inspiring us and unlocking creative ideas, thinking in an unconstrained way. But robot, you know, as we evolve to have robots, you know, more integrated with our, our everyday lives, there are constraints and there are factors there that it's easy, I think, in uh, science fiction to not worry about. So I think while science fiction can certainly, again, trigger a lot of good ideas, a lot of inspiration, the reality is pretty different from what we see in the movies. Yeah, I think, you know, storytelling in general tends to lean towards certain types of things. Like there isn't going to be a blockbuster movie that says, you know, robots are introduced and everything was fine. <laughs> so, That's right. Like, so we like we tend to see the stories on, on sort of the extreme ends of things. Although it does strike me that the, the movie Robot and Frank was a pretty good example of an unconventional take on bringing a robot into a, a situation. Yes, you certainly see a, a variety that are some that are closer to reality than others. So I'm wondering if someone wants to update the way they think about robots. I mean, one way they could update it easily is to read your book. That would be yes. great. What's another, like an action or a thing they could look up? I don't know, yeah. a movie that's good? Or like, how would you suggest someone update themselves? 
Yeah, so I think finding ways to experience robotics today um, is a great way. This is something we're passionate about, also emotional. Um, and so we made our, our autonomous vehicle available to the public through the Lyft app in Las Vegas. And so you can, you know, go to Vegas and, you know, hail a ride and you choose. Do you want an autonomous ride or a, a human-driven ride? So that's one example, but I know there are many others. But I would say, you know, finding ways to experience robots today is a great way to update and to see see it firsthand. I think our book is a great way to read about it and to think about it. But getting that exposure, that direct exposure, will also shed some light on things that you might not expect. And I think overall, you know, what we've seen is there's been tremendously positive feedback of people that have ridden in our cars, our autonomous cars. I think people, you know, think it's science fiction, you know, to imagine an autonomous car and then they get in and take a ride. Today, we have safety operators, you know, monitoring the system uh, in the car with you. But people are very surprised by how smooth of a ride it is, and how safe it is, how, how it can handle so many different scenarios on the road. So getting that firsthand experience, I think, is really um, enlightening. And again, we've, we've received really positive feedback on people who've had a chance to do that. That's awesome. I'd love to try one of those. I wish we had it uh, over here in D.C. already. I guess we'll have to wait till after COVID and people can travel again. <laughs> right. So one of the topics you had on your list was like the downsides of treating robots as if they're human. So I'm curious if you could go into that a little bit. So I think, you know, robots, they have their own strengths and limitations. And it's, you know, long been studied in, in other applications that their strengths and, and their limitations are different than people. And so, you know, there are certain things people are good at and certain things that robots are good at. You know, I mentioned earlier, robots are really good at repeating a step very reliably over and over and over and over again. People are terrible at that. There's something called vigilance decrement. If you have somebody monitor, look for some rare event situation to appear, we're really bad at that. And the more time that goes on, you know, the worse we get. A machine, you know, if you give it a task to do, it will just crank it out and, you know, again, repeat that task very accurately. Machines are very good at calculating, making computations, uh, whereas a person, it might require you to stop and think and you might not be able to do it as quickly or as, as robustly. But on the other hand, there are things people are really good at, you know, that we have not yet figured out how to make a robot good at, and we may never, or certainly not anytime soon. So things that require creativity, things that require, you know, a certain element of judgment, where you have to take, you know, your experiences from one very different environment or domain and use that to make a judgment about a different problem. Computers and, and robots aren't very good at that yet. So it's important that when we interact with robots and when we design robots, that, that people realize that they're different than a person, that they bring a different set of strengths and they have limits. And so I think in some ways, if you design a robot to look like a person, too much like a person, then it, it can be confusing and misleading to the people who have to interact with that system. And so it's less important that it, you know, looks like a person and more important that it looks like what it's supposed to do. That will help to develop and build the right mental models by the people who encounter these robots because they will have, you know, a better under direct understanding of what the robot is doing. I'm curious about how that could get messed around with by manufacturers. For example, if they find that there's a robot that is getting, you know, pushed around or, or kicked or whatever by the people in its environment what if they add in like it cries out in pain when it notices it's being kicked or like in you know any other sort of social signaling to manipulate the human into treating it differently 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things we advocate for is building in, you know, communication that fits mental models of, that people already have. So you, you say the example of cry, you know, if someone kicks a robot and you don't want them to, as the designer, have the robot respond in, in some way that a person will understand, like crying or falling over. Another example, you know, that we look at uh, in autonomous driving is if a pedestrian, you know, is waiting at a crosswalk and looking at your car, trying to decide if the car is going to stop or not. There are many ways you could try to communicate to the pedestrian, I see you and I'm stopping for you. But a natural way that we all use today is when you hear that sound, the screeching sound of brakes, that gives you a signal that the car is slowing down. And so then you might feel more comfort in crossing the road. So I think there are many ways that we can build on, you know, people's uh, mental models they already have and use that in how the robot communicates to the person. And it goes the other way around too. You know, I think if, as we see robots start to uh, canvas our, our neighborhoods, there are ways that you might communicate with another person. Like, let's say if, you see a robot that's about to roll over an important package that was just delivered at the end of your driveway. You know, if it were somebody riding a bike, you might say, hey, hey, watch out for that box over there. So there might be ways like that that are very natural for people to communicate to other people that we can start to think about how can you design a robot to be able to understand and respond to those same types of commands. So I think, yeah, it goes both ways in terms of how a robot can communicate in ways that are natural for, for people to understand and build on their existing mental models, as well as, you know, allow the robot to understand the communication approaches people used. There was a uh, really interesting passage in a, a sci-fi book I read recently called Change Agent, where the person was treating the sort of AI assistant as very politely saying please and thank you and, and, and being very gracious to them. And one of the other characters said, oh, don't do that to them because they will learn that you have empathy for them and use that to manipulate you. <laughs> this goes back to what people are good at and what machines are yeah. good at. And um, I don't think robots, you know, anytime soon are going to be as capable at, at manipulation of, of that yeah. sort. Yeah. Unless, you know, unless the people who are designing them design them that way to learn and adapt their behavior in that way. So, yeah, I think there's a back to this idea of a social entity, that there's a bigger social system that these robots are a part of. And maybe it's useful for the robot to understand that you're empathizing with it. And so maybe it can then, you know, depend on you as a user to respond in certain ways that might be helpful for the robot to complete its task or to effectively engage with you. So there could be positive direction of that, but I think it it will only do what, what it's been programmed to do in the near future anyways. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a ways off for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this makes me think of one of the other topics that you kind of provided us with, which is what we expect from robots, which we've talked about quite a lot, but then also what they expect from us. And I was really curious about that one because like my brain was like, well, robot can't really expect anything from us in the way that like I am thinking about that word. So I'd really love to get your take on that. Yeah. So I think, you know, big theme of our book is that the solutions to make robots truly achieve the potential that they have to help us in our everyday lives, the solutions are, are really at the intersection of technology and society. And so it's not the robots on their own 
it really is only one half of, of the solution. Uh, the other half is figuring out how these robots are going to interact with people. And so what the robot can expect from you, you know, whether you know it or not, the designers of the robot are making some assumptions about the users implicitly or explicitly. And I guess we advocate that it should be explicit, that there should be dedicated effort put into thinking about that side of the equation. You know, the human side of the equation. Uh, how can the, the robot be designed in a way that's going to match human expectations? And again, back to the mental models and, you know, behave in a way that the people will understand. So it comes back to that. And then I think additionally, the other point that we're making is that while you know, users and not just users, but what we call bystanders, people who will come across these robots in their normal lives, that there's going to have to be some some evolution in you know adopting and accepting these social entities will coexist uh, with people and that I think you know what robots can expect from people will change over time because as we get you know more knowledgeable and more used to these systems you know we will figure out ways to incorporate them into our lives in a way that's better for for them but because it's better for us, because it, it provides a benefit, then we'll be motivated to accommodate these robots. We have an example of a grocery store of the future where you might have many robots doing different things, whether it's stocking shelves or even repositioning shelves. If you look at some of the robots used today in distribution centers, the, the shelves themselves are robots. And so you could extend that into into stores. And in that case, if, if you have that, you know there might need to be accommodations made in the store that that people understand. So you might want to have a crosswalk for robots that goes in and out of the stock room, for example. So maybe once it comes out of the stock room and is interacting in the, the broader store, you know, the robot is, is more cautious about the people that it's interacting around. But maybe at the crosswalk, the responsibility may be put on people to accommodate the robots more. Um, so this that's the idea of this kind of what to expect both from the robot, what can the robot expect from people and what can people expect from the robot that both sides of the equation are going to have to change somewhat to get this right. It's interesting to think about how it's going to be important when we look at how robots are behaving in the world. We're going to end up inevitably doing some sort of forensic analysis about how they performed in various situations and having that explainable, inspectable state that you can understand how it got to do the thing it did or how it got into the state that it got in, I think is going to be important, A, for helping the public start building its understanding of what the robot was doing, but also even from a public safety perspective, like it might end up being under the NTSB where they're, they're going to have to go in and look at how the thing ended up doing the thing that it did uh, if, if that was incorrect. Yeah, certainly. And there's a lot of research going into explainable AI right now. I think that's, um, you know, a, a really active area that needs, you know, needs a lot of attention, figuring out it's not enough to have these systems, you know, make decisions in a way that, you know, maybe produces a, a result. We have to also be able to trace, you know, what's the rationale that led to that result? Because inevitably, again, errors will happen, mistakes will happen. That's just the reality of any human-created machine. And so, you know, we need to have a way to understand that, to trace it, to regulate it. That'll be an important part of scaling this technology more broadly. I love hearing you talk about the human side of the equation. So my background is in UX research. And I've experienced that a lot of companies where UX research is sometimes an afterthought or it's on a team that's not talking to the engineering team as often. They just throw designs over. And the best that's work right. I've done is when we work closely with them. When we're the same team. We talk all the time. 
I'm curious how Emotional has managed to keep this thinking about the human side front and center. Yes, absolutely. At Motional, you know, our theme is people first in really all that we do. I would say it's integrated into the fabric of what we do. You know, from I talked a little bit about this idea, we call it expressive robotics for how how's the vehicle going to communicate to outside actors, whether it's pedestrians or drivers. But there are, you know, there are many ways. I think you see it in our leadership. You see it in our engineering organization. We have, you know, we don't just have people who have the strong robotics background. We do have people who have the UX who have designed AI that, you know, learns from human behavior and reflects human behavior. So I agree with you that it can't be an afterthought. It can't be a side project. It, it can't be um, just thinking about, you know, a display, a good design of a display. It really has to go into the core of the product, how the system behaves. Again, as a social entity, the system you know needs to be designed from how it makes decisions, how it understands the world, and how it ultimately communicates with the outside world. That has to all be done with an understanding of the human side of the equation. This is a pretty indulgent question, so I totally understand if you can't or don't want to answer. But something I think about often is, will autonomous cars become like the standard that everyone uses in my lifetime. Um, and I'm very curious about this. I think about it a lot. And I'm just wondering, like, as someone who's like doing this very professionally at like a high level, what is your opinion on like how far away we are from that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, you know, it's hard for me to predict too. Um, I don't know how long it will take for this technology to get to the, you know, the level you're talking about where all of us, you know, are using AVs as our primary mode of transportation. I think, you know, what we're going to see in the next couple of years is that AVs will become a reality for robo-taxi applications. So in certain cities, you will be able to hail an AV, a driverless you know, car will take you where you need to go in that city. Um, and then I think we'll see it scale up across cities. One thing that has to happen before it's sort of really available in, in our personal cars is, you know, today it relies on, in order to achieve the safety standards that are needed, there's a pretty complex sensor set that's needed to provide redundancy and full 360 coverage. So we need to see some of those costs come down before it's affordable in personal vehicles. But I think, so I think, yeah, robo taxis absolutely in your lifetime, hopefully in the next couple of years, but then I think it'll scale up over time. I hope by the time I'm elderly and not able to see as well, I, I will no longer have to drive a car in any city that I'm in. Plus, you're talking about it from like a technological standpoint, but there's also like a very social standpoint of like, does that become standard? How do people react to it like emotionally? Yes, that is that is true. And actually, that's kind of um, the basis of our name, Motional, how we came up with it. It combines, you know, motion, which is the core of our product uh, with emotional. And I think, you know, we see, you know, transportation decisions have always been somewhat emotional, but it's taken on a whole new level with COVID. And so how we move, you know, from point A to point B is, you know, is an emotional decision. There's, of course, the safety aspect, um, and now there's the health aspect. And so that very much is kind of what drove the decision for our name, because, you know, people first is really our, you know, our core focus. And so emotional came from that combination. Earlier in this, I heard you say Swiss cheese model. And I happen to know that's the Swiss cheese model of error prevention. And I've been thinking about it a lot, especially during COVID, like, you need lots of layers of protection. You want to wear a mask and do distancing and have testing and be outdoors if you meet anyone, all those layers. That's I'm right. Curious to hear an example 
from autonomous vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and we have some examples in the book as well, but from an AV point of view, you know, you certainly have the interaction of the vehicle and the passenger. So things like um, making sure the person is in their seat properly and their seatbelt is buckled is a layer of protection. We have the layer of protection of a remote operator to be monitoring and making sure that the system is fully functional and um, everything is going well or to intervene if there's some unexpected situation like a construction zone or a traffic accident. And then you have other, you know, other layers as well, regulation. We have a self-imposed um, safety process we go through where we have an, an external assessor of our architecture and of our, um, our test results to ensure that, that we have followed all the proper procedures we need to to implement a safe system. So these are some of the layers that all come together to create an overall safe you know, experience. But yeah, I think you know, people play a role in all of that, whether, again, that's the, the people in the car, the people you know, monitoring the operation or the people designing, assessing, and regulating. Cool. That's exactly what I was looking for. There's more layers than I could have said that I would have expected there. That's awesome. Yes, there are many, many layers. That's right. We've come to the place in the show where we go into reflections, which is each of us is going to talk about the things that, uh, you know, have struck us from this conversation, maybe something we're going to be thinking about after the show or just the, you know, the ideas that, that we found most resonant. Uh, so for me, like, I, I, I'm so fascinated about how things are going to turn out with the, the social constructs around these social entities as you described them, which I think is a great phrase because it really talks about how they're integrated into the social fabric in some way. And we're still trying to define what that shape looks like. And there, I think there are ways for it to go right and ways for it to go wrong. And I think it's great that you're, you've written this book to help people start thinking about this, to help the industry start thinking about this, because there's still so much that has yet to be put in place uh, around this stuff. And, and like the more thinking, the more books, the more writing, the more we can think about what these impacts are going to look like, the better prepared we're going to be once they actually get here. For me, it's always going to be a question of like, what's the right level of empathy for uh, one of these you know, social entities you know, how different are they from a pet or from a, a servant, right? Or someone who works for you. Like they're, they're different levels and they all have different implications about how you're going to treat them. And, you know, I think it's still TBD, like where everything's going to end up setting. So that's, that's still something I'm chewing on and probably will be for years. That actually leads right into what I was going to say for my reflection. So thank you, John. I was also thinking just about how fascinating it is to me to kind of be in the process of creating a new social norm like this. Not that we haven't been in that process for a lot of things, but I think that not always, we're not always in a situation where we realize that's what we're doing consciously in the way that we're able to have this conversation about it right now. And the thing that that got me thinking about was this idea of like having to think through more thoroughly, like who you could be hurting with your actions because we were talking about like the way that people treat robots, like maybe with cruelty. Um, and I think that that probably stems from this feeling of like, Oh, well it can't, like it, it doesn't know I'm not offending a robot. I'm not like hurting it in that kind of way, the way that you would hurt a person, but like how you treat a robot could offend or hurt a person. And I think John touched on one of the really obvious ways, which is like, if there actually is a person on the other end of it and you didn't realize I was thinking about, um, 
push the talking trash can, which is a robot from Tomorrowland and Disney, and it's like a little trash can that like rolls around and talks to people and interacts with people, and it's just a guy that's like navigating it and speaking through it, but people kind of talk back to this trash can and so if you're rude to the trash can you're really being rude to this person but I could also see like people get emotional about like you know we talked about Roombas right at the beginning like if you kind of kick my Roomba with your the side of your foot you're definitely not offending its feelings you're probably not gonna like hurt this piece of tech that I own if you're not being like really violent with it but like you might offend me like you kicked my Roomba like how dare you and so I think that that's kind of just an interesting way that you have to think things through and I'm gonna I'm also kind of chewing on like well how many layers are there of that that I should be thinking through and in what situations there's a couple reflections I want to share a couple small ones sometimes when I leave my apartment I say when Casey's away the robots will play and I turn on my dishwasher and I set my Roomba to vacuum the apartment they're both very noisy i don't want to be with them when they're doing their work but they're very different those two one is a social entity the roomba i consider i personify a lot more than the dishwasher which i never do and i never noticed the distinction until you said the word social entity and it clicked that's powerful the second thing i picked up was the way that you have to think about who's affected outside of the car not just the passengers that's a big idea, and it feels so parallel to work in UX. Like, if you zoom out from UX, you get to service design. Who else is affected by this one app you're making? Not just the person who uses it, but people around them. It's like zooming out as a trend, I think, is powerful. I want to see more of that. The third thing I picked up was that we should all be on the lookout for robo-taxis like Las Vegas has. I didn't know they were so close. I didn't know they were live in Las Vegas. That's mind-blowing. That's so cool. I, too, would like to ride a robo-taxi. That sounds very exciting. Yes, please do. We would welcome you to take a ride with us next time you're in Vegas. Let me know. One thing I found really interesting today in, in our discussion was this play between not wanting these robots of the future to look too much like people because of the potential dangers that could cause by people misunderstanding you know, how to properly interact with the robot, but also the play between that and the need for the robot to behave in ways that people understand. Uh, and how hard, like how in some ways that's very, a very subtle difference and, uh, and hard to get that right. I think again, since I live in, in this world and think about it a lot, to me that that difference is clear, but I, in the discussion today, I think we talked about it on, we talked about both sides of that and how important both are. And, and it sort of became clear to me that it's a subtle difference and, and it's hard to get that right. This has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us about this. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed the discussion. It's a lot of fun. Laura Major, your book yeah. is called What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots. Is It's out now? It is, yes. Excellent. It's available. So everyone can go right buy here. it. <laughs> yes. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me.